says in his word to us. So let's go to Genesis chapter 22 this morning. Genesis chapter 22. If you'll recall a few months ago, Brother Pat Delaney was here, and during the afternoon service of that Sunday, we had a split session between the men and the ladies. And if the men will remember this, Brother Delaney talked to us about the fear of the Lord, and his basic thought was what seems to be, if we could call it, the standard definition of the fear of the Lord to him seemed... um, seemed to be a little weak. And he referenced it, he, he laid it out there for us. That, well, so often when we say the fear of the Lord, we define that by the phrase reverential awe. And the thought he shared with us that afternoon resonated with me because many times as I've thought about that subject, I have thought the same thing. Now technically there's nothing inherently wrong with what we might call that standard definition. The fear, one aspect of the fear of the Lord is having a reverential awe of God. However, what's often the problem, or where we, where we can get messed up in this area, is we make it a shallow concept. And we often do this because, you know, quite frankly, we do not like the idea of being afraid of God. And yes, we understand that those of us who are born-again Christians who have accepted the salvation that is in Jesus Christ, we understand that because of what Jesus has done for us, we do not have to be afraid of the just wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin. We understand that we don't have to be afraid of that because of what Jesus did for us. And we can rightly glory in that fact. We who were once enemies of God and had every reason to dread meeting God and dread experiencing his punishment now can anticipate meeting him with joy. But you know, sometimes when we read in the Bible of the fear of the Lord, we have a tendency to react negatively to that statement and we feel that we must come up with some sort of apology for it. We don't like the idea of being afraid of God, and so we apply the label reverential awe and satisfy our minds, but then we move on as if this concept doesn't actually mean all that much, practically speaking. And at the end of the day, this, that, this treatment of the subject does not reflect the way the Bible presents to us the fear of the Lord. In fact, if we stop and we consider what the Bible explains to us about what it means to fear God, we find that it's an, intense, an intensely practical subject that should affect every day of our lives. We're going to look at a story, an account in the Bible this morning that will demonstrate this fact for us. So I assume you're there in Genesis chapter 22. Ooh, let's read the passage this morning. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham. And he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. 
And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and claved the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lift up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide you here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of Isaac his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together to consider your word Lord, we thank you and praise you this morning that we can have your word in a language that we can understand and thereby learn of your wisdom for this life and of the things that are to come. And Lord, we do thank and praise you for the freedom that you've given us this morning to gather together and turn our eyes upon you and consider your message to us. Lord, we do ask for your grace this morning, Lord, we need your grace to communicate your word clearly and your grace to grasp and understand what you would have for us. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust you for that. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, there's many strange stories in the Bible, and quite frankly, um, this is one of them. And as we seek to understand it this morning, we have to understand that the account we find here in Genesis is not a religious legend or a myth. It is an event that happened in the life of a man who was just like you and me. You know, we read in the previous chapters of Genesis and we find that Abraham was just like any of us. He had his own problems. He had his own struggles when it came to trusting God. And so if we were to bring Abraham into our service this morning, we would probably find that we could relate to him in many ways. And yet, because of his response to God in this strange and difficult circumstance, God holds him up as an example to us of what it means to fear God, so that we may learn from his life and do likewise in ours. So as we seek to understand this story, let's first of all consider the setting and seek to answer the question, what is going on? 
And we see in the first verse that God lets us in on what is going on from the very beginning. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, we have the benefit of approaching this story of understanding what is going on because God gives us the bird's eye view and he lets us know from the very beginning what he's doing. But, I, but as we consider what is going on and we try to look at it from Abraham's perspective, we have to look at it from the perspective that God did not tell Abraham what he was doing. In fact, God gives Abraham no reason why he is putting him through what he has decided to put him through. God is in the business of testing people, of bringing difficult circumstances into their lives to expose in a very practical way what they actually believe about him. And so God comes and he tests. Now, the, 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 our King James Version says he tempted him. That obviously means he tested him. God does not tempt any man with evil. So God comes to Abraham and he tests him. And as we consider, again, what is going on here, we have to reckon with the fact, where is Abraham at in this point of his life? And if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 12, we would find that when God first came to Abraham and gave him the promises that became the Abrahamic covenant, that Abraham was 75 years old. And at that time, God promised to make of him a great nation. And as his life progressed, God promised more and more and repeated the promises. And we'll read some of these. To help us, these will help us understand where Abraham is at in his life. In Genesis 13 and verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. God repeated these promises to Abraham again in chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abraham said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And again in chapter 17, and verse 15, and God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. And Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? 
And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. So as we, as we survey these promises that God has given Abraham, as we just read in, cha in um, chapter 17 here, from the time un when God first started making his promises to Abraham to the time that Isaac was actually born, it was a period of about 25 years. Abraham waited 25 years for Isaac to come. And his, as we, if we were to take the time and read the accounts, we would find that Abraham's faith was not perfect during that time. He was, he was stretched. But he did believe God. And so as we get to this point where God commands him to sacrifice Isaac, we find Abraham in a place in his life where he had endured with much patience and testing his trust in God already. And Romans chapter 4 describes his faith this way. It says, Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So Abraham has come to a place in his life, not only when he's been tested, but he has actually received a token of the promise that God gave him, Isaac. And so the, at this point in Abraham's life, God comes to him with a test, and he says in verse 2 of Genesis 22, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Now, if we can step back and try to look at, try to hear God saying this in Abraham's shoes, the the fact of the matter is that is probably the last thing that Abraham expected God to say to him. Isaac represented the hope of all that God had promised to Abraham. You know, in a very real way, Isaac was a living miracle. He was the testimony, the token from God to Abraham that he was truly going to make of him a great nation. Isaac was a living testimony to the power, the glory, and the character of God. Every time Abraham walked out of his tent and looked at Isaac, he saw something of what his God was like. He saw a living testimony of God's goodness, of his love, of his omnipotence, of his faithfulness. And you know, if we were, hypothetically speaking, if we were to be travelers in that day, if we were to come to Abraham's tent, and Abraham was to, as they did in those days, offer us hospitality, no doubt Abraham would want to sit us down and tell us all about what God did. He would no doubt call Isaac in, and he would tell us the story 
and he would point to his son as an evidence of how great his God was. And yet it was this son that God asked of Abraham. And notice that God is very clear. He's very specific about which son he is talking about. He says, Abraham, I want you to take thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Now, obviously, Abraham had more than one son at this point. He had had Ishmael previously to this. But Isaac was Abraham's only son in the sense that he was the unique son. He was the only son of promise. He was the son that God had promised Abraham that he was going to make a great nation out of him through. And it was this son that God came to Abraham and said, now Abraham, I want you to take him and I want you to give him to me for a burnt offering. So how did Abraham respond to this? Well, Genesis 22 goes to great length in describing for us how Abraham responded. We can see his outward actions. He rose up early in the morning. He made preparations to obey. He took two young men, saddled his donkey, and they went off, set off for the place that God had told him of. It took him three days to get there, and as they approached the mountain, he tells his men, wait here, we're going to go worship, and then we're going to come back to you. And as the story progresses, it comes to the climax where he takes the knife, he prepares to slay his son, and then God stops him. But the reason I do believe that God goes to the pains to lay out for us what Abraham did step by step, obviously God didn't have to tell us that, even to make the point that he was trying to make, but what he was trying to do is bring us up to this climax where Abraham actually takes the knife and prepares to actually kill his son. And the reason God brings us to this climax where Abraham almost takes the life of his son is it is in that moment that what was in his heart comes out. It is revealed to us that he actually intended to obey what God told him to do. Which leads us to ask a second question. Obviously, we can see Abraham's actions, but this leads us to ask the question, what actually was going on inside of Abraham's heart? And God tells us in the passage, he says in verse number 12, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So God says that that day when Abraham almost sacrificed his son, what he has demonstrated for us is what it means to fear God. And there's two aspects of what it means to fear God that I'd like us to consider this morning. And the first aspect we see is this, is that one aspect of the fear of the Lord is that of having complete trust or faith in Him. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, the New Testament makes a comment on this event in Abraham's life.
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. You know, it's easy to look at the story of Abraham and think to yourself, you know what, I could never have that faith. As far as I can tell, the passage in Genesis doesn't tell us how exactly God came to Abraham and gave him his message. Maybe it was in a dream, maybe it was in a vision. And you know, sometimes we can approach this story and think, you know, I could never have this kind of faith if I, you know, if I hypothetically speaking had a son and God came to me in, let's say, a dream and says, now I want, I want you to go and I want you to go sacrifice your son. I would probably wake up in the morning and say, well, that was strange. Must have been something I ate. But uh, that's not the point that, that's not the lesson about faith that, that, that Abraham's life shows us. The point is not that Abraham had a strange dream or vision and somehow managed to conjure up enough faith that what he heard was from God. Abraham had no doubt that God was speaking to him. The point is that he believed that God would certainly do what he said. Notice in Hebrews 11 here, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And in verse 18 it says, Of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And what we have to understand is that God had given a specific promise to Abraham that out of this specific son, Isaac, I am going to make of you a great nation. And yet if we consider the command that God gave to Abraham that day, it must not have made sense to him. Because humanly speaking, the death of Isaac was the greatest obstacle to God fulfilling that promise. Dead men don't have children. So what does this teach us? Verse 19 of Hebrews 11 reveals to us something about Abraham's reasoning. We see this in chapter 22 as well, specifically when he told his servants... I and the lad are going to go worship, and then, we're, then we are going to come back to you. In verse 19, it says, Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So if we could put it this way, Abraham's reasoning was this. God promised me seed through Isaac. God does not lie. He will certainly do this. He is greater than death himself. He gave me a son when it was impossible, and he can do it again. So yes, the death of Isaac was the greatest obstacle to God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. And yet what's important for us to understand, what's important for us to get a hold of from Abraham's example, is that he looked beyond the circumstances of his life, what God had told him to do, And he believed that there was something true about God. 
He was convinced that something was absolutely true about God's ability and his character. As it says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham was fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he was able to perform, but he was also absolutely convinced that God would certainly do it. And you know, you and I may never be placed in the same circumstance that Abraham was placed in. God will probably never come to us and say, I want you to go to such and such a mountain and kill your son. But the lesson we must walk away with from Abraham's life is that when we read the Bible or hear it preached, when we hear God's word to us, when we come across one of the many promises of God, we must respond to that promise with the realization that God always and absolutely, without exception, means what he says. The fear of the Lord then recognizes this fact and trusts and obeys in light of it. A second aspect we see of the fear of the Lord from, this, from the example of Abraham is that of complete submission to God, even when it comes to the most valuable thing in life. You know, God said, he said to Abraham, now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. Notice that Abraham did not Excuse me. Notice that not only did Abraham submit to God's command, but also noticed what he submitted. We mentioned this already, but Isaac was the son of promise. Abraham, I mean, Isaac was the token of the glory of God in Abraham's life. And yet, even Abraham had come to a place in his life that he was willing to trust God, even with the life of this one unique son of his. Uncle Bob likes A.W. Tozer. Some of you may have read him. I have not read a lot of him. But a quote, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to quote it perfectly, but the gist of something A.W. Tozer said was, Christians can sometimes live like practical atheists. We say we believe in God. We say that we trust God. And then when difficult circumstances come up in life, we find an instruction in the Word of God that is difficult to obey. We can respond as if there was no God, as if we, thought, as if we knew better than Him. But you know, the extent to which we actually love and trust God is exposed in whether or not we submit to God when it comes to the most valuable and precious things to us. And the example of Abraham shows us that God is trustworthy in all these areas of our lives. So we see from the example of Abraham that when it comes to fearing God, much of fearing God comes down to living in light of the certainty of what God has said. Let's go to Amos chapter 3. Now you may be thinking, Brother Matt, this is rather strange. I would never put Abraham and Amos in the same boat.
but that's okay. Amos will allow us here to look at another angle of what it means to fear God. And uh, he makes a statement here that will help us summarize what we learn from Abraham's life as well. So Amos chapter 3, Amos was a prophet. And his message is given mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And, you know, we find the life of Abraham, generally speaking, to be encouraging. We can relate to Abraham. If we need some encouragement, we might go to Abraham and read his story and receive blessing and encouragement from it. Well, Amos is not very encouraging. His message was mostly a message of judgment. And in chapter 3, he's giving what some commentators say is a defense of his message. He had a very unpopular message in his day, a message of judgment against Israel. In chapter 3, he says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? And as we consider what Amos says here from the context of God's judgment, it's also important. Obviously, Abraham's life demonstrates to us the fear of the Lord from the perspective of God means what he says. Therefore, we can believe his promises for they are certain. But we also have to realize that the fear of the Lord does hear his warnings. When God says even to Christians, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Statements like that you find in your Bible are worth sitting up and taking notice of. Because God, just as God's promises are certain, his warnings are also certain. Concluding then with Amos, let's look at the point that he makes in verse, chap in verse 8 of chapter 3. He says, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy? Now, obviously, if you were going to go down to the zoo here in South Bend, you would find some lions, and they would be in cages. And you know, if you were there in the zoo, and those lions started roaring, you probably wouldn't be too scared because you understand something's true. That lion is in a cage. He's not gonna hurt me. 
But you know, if you were to go to Africa and you were to go out in the bush and let's say you were walking from one village to another and you heard a lion roar nearby, what would be your reaction? No doubt you would be scared. And rightly so. Why? Because that lion is obviously a threat. The lion in the cage is not a threat to you. But the lion in the bush is. He's not just making noise. You understand the fact that he has the power and the ability to carry out his threat. And the natural result of that is fear. You respond to that lion in the way you do because you understand that something is true about him. In the same way, Amos is essentially saying in this verse, defending his message, when a lion roars, you are afraid of him. How can you not be afraid of him? So he says, when God speaks, how can I not give his message? How can I remain silent and not proclaim what he has said? The lion's message is a message of impending danger. It is not to be ignored, put aside as irrelevant to what is going on at the moment, or dismissed as fake news. To do this very well may have tragic consequences. And you know it's the same way with God. His message demands a response. In Revelation, Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And as we approach the scriptures, whether that be through our personal study or when it's proclaimed to us from the pulpit, we need to reckon with the fact that a lion has roared. And this lion does not make idle pronouncements, and he has the power and ability to render everything certain that he has said. You know, in conclusion, I think it would be helpful to consider in Acts chapter, I don't remember the chapter, but um, when Paul is on Mars Hill and he's preaching the gospel to the philosophers on Mars Hill, the Bible tells us that that group of men responded in three ways when they heard the word of God, when they heard the message of God. Paul came to them and he preached the gospel unto them and he specifically told them there is coming a day when God is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. You could say that that day those philosophers heard the lion roar. You know, as we read of their responses, you find that there were some men when they heard of the resurrection, they mocked. Now, most of us in here are Christians. We would claim to be Christians. And so when we hear the word of God, we might not just, as those men probably did, openly scoff at what God said. But you know, there are more subtle ways that we can scoff at what God has said. When we read of a promise or we hear of a promise and we say, I am the exception to that promise, God will not do that for me. That is scoffing at what God said. And you know what, that is no different than going back to our illustration of us from walking from one village to another in the bush and hearing the lion roar. That's, that's no different and it's just as foolish as saying, I don't actually believe there's a lion over there. 
Some villager must be playing a trick on me. Obviously, in that situation, we recognize that that's foolish, but you know, when we respond to the word of God that way, that is just as foolish. Then there were other philosophers that day that says, we will hear thee again on this matter. You know, if you say that to a lion, he's probably not going to wait. And, uh, you know, our response to God doesn't change the fact that what he has said is true in that moment. But then there were men that day that received Paul's message and it says they clave to him. They embraced what he said. They believed what he has said was true. You know, Abraham understood this. As we saw in his life, God had promised that he would give him nations through Isaac. And as Abraham responded to that command from God, he understood that the circumstances God was putting him through didn't change what God had said. The fear of the Lord recognizes that God is always trustworthy and deserving of our complete obedience, even when the circumstances are difficult or seem contrary to what God has promised. Abraham did not withhold from God his most valuable aspect, the most valuable aspect of his life. The fear of the Lord recognizes that one is not the exception to what God has said, whether that be his warnings or his promises. You know, the Bible is not a book of idle words. It contains a divine message that is backed by the very power of God. And as God asked Abraham one day, is anything too hard for the Lord? What God says is always certain. The fear of the Lord recognizes this and responds accordingly whether that be trusting his promises, submitting to his will, or heeding his warnings. So in conclusion, we mentioned the statement, the fear of the Lord is the reverential fear of God. And as we said, that is true. But as we meditate on what that means and seek to apply it to our lives, let us, we, let us be sure that we understand just how great that reverential law is to be. It is not a concept that is to be dismissed. The lion has roared and he demands a response. Uncle Bob's gonna come at this time and lead us in a song. And as we sing this song and meditate on what we've heard from the word of God this morning, maybe you're here and, you know, if you're dead honest with yourself in your heart, you would say, you know what, I am afraid of God. I'm afraid that one day that when I die and I meet God, that I will experience his judgment. And if that's true today, I'll be here at the front and you can come talk to me and we'll connect you with someone that would be happy to take a Bible and show you how those fears in your heart can be settled. And, or if the Lord has worked in your heart, your heart and you feel the need to come forward and spend some time praying, you're certainly welcome to do that as well. So as Uncle Bob comes, 
Let's meditate on what God has taught us as we sing trust and obey.